welcome back to the Movie Bible Podcast. This week you've got myself and Nick, and we have a lot to talk about. Um, so I don't know about you, but I think we should ignore all of it and just talk about that slap for another 45 to an hour. Um, I know we already covered it between you and Brennan, but that, what else is there to talk about, really? Like movies? There really, there's it. nothing. Culture ceases ceased to exist after that night. It's all about the slap. I'm sure Brennan's very happy that we're starting this podcast if he's listening, but um, <laughs> I do it's good to be here. Good <laughs> yeah, to talk about non-slap things as well. It's been a while since you and I have had a one-on-one going through a lot of stuff, so this will be fun. Yeah, fuck Brennan. This is cool. <laughs> <laughs> this is the America-only pod. <laughs> um, so we are going to cover quite a few movies um, here in a bit, but we are going to start talking about Bruce Willis um, a little bit. And this is some news that unfortunately um, got overshadowed a little bit by the other incident that we're not going to talk about anymore. Uh, vis-a-vis Chris Rock and Will Smith. Um, but Bruce Willis um, announced that he was stepping away from acting um, due to a recent diagnosis um, called aphasia. And um, just so it's, from my understanding of it, it's a, it's a disease that affects your ability to recall words. And um, obviously that interferes with speech patterns and just makes it more difficult to act and to deliver lines and, and, you know, just recall words. So obviously that would be a, a major detriment to an actor. So it is a, it is a, a very tragic thing because, um, you know, Bruce Willis is not that old either. You know, he's still physically um, pretty, pretty fit and able to perform. So it is uh, a pretty sad thing to see pop up in the news this past week. Yeah, it's really is a bummer and it kind of does. I, you don't want to speculate too much, right? Because you don't know what was going on. But there has been a lot of com- like talk about kind of what where his career has been the past few years, where he's been just cranking out five to six VOD movies every single year, with like the one exclusion in that being Glass, which is just very interesting. Um, so you can kind of kind of makes his diagnosis kind of does put his performances in those movies in kind of a, a different light and also maybe why he chose to be in those to begin with because it seemed like those weren't a lot of it was a good it was a good paycheck for not a lot of time and you can imagine if he's struggling that would be really good for him but yeah it's just it really is a bummer because obviously you have you know die hard all of those movies and he really he really is when you think of the grizzled action man with gun you know bruce willis really did create that and kind of he created the language for basically every modern action movie ever you know it's die hard every movie every action movie is die hard on a blank or whatever and then the rock comes out with skyscraper and it's just die hard again but with a tech building that's basically <laughs> it you know so it's just he i think obviously we know him as like a big a-list star but i don't think we've all of us have like really realized how big of an influence he is on just the history of movies and how we just make action movies. It just, it really is such a bummer. Yeah. And he's done a lot. I mean, he has a very sizable filmography too. And so it's very easy to, like you said, just be like, Oh, die hard, but without realizing, you know, just how much he's done um, and how much he's done outside of it. You know, you even look at something like, you know, just his support for Tarantino early on with Pulp Fiction, right? Getting Bruce Willis to be in that movie, which you got to remember, Quentin Tarantino wasn't always, you know, the headliner. Um, 
a name like that at the time. He was one of the bigger stars in the movie because, um, you know, Travolta hadn't really or Travolta was was after his dip, hadn't really come back yet. Samuel L. Jackson was on the way up, but Bruce Willis was a bona fide star by that point. Um, so you just look at, you know, even the impact that something like that has on just movies in general today. Yeah, he he was like, it's kind of crazy to think how influential he was back in the 90s. Like he really was the guy. And I think even even another thing that's lost about him, I think he is really good in some of his more sensitive roles. I mean, he is the, he is the PKA motherfucker, but <laughs> I... I think, especially Unbreakable, which I think is just weirdly is a very important movie to me. I guess the Shyamalan Philly thing. I don't know, maybe. But I think his performance as just kind of a beaten down dad in that movie, I think is some of his finest work. And he's very emotional and he has that kind of, um, he can he uses that kind of action grizzled man persona to kind of inform how just depressed he is that depression that he kind of shows in that movie i just think that's one of his better performances and yeah he and you could look at like moonrise kingdom which i think 2012 was probably like his last great year because he had that in looper but moonrise kingdom he's just kind of he's just kind of a father figure just a really like a nice guy who's kind of humorous you know it's just I think he he really it's kind of a bummer to see him kind of suffer with this disease not just because for his personal health but I think it did rob us of a possible pivot where he kind of turns into this grandfatherly figure which I think Moonrise Kingdom was certainly pivoting towards kind of you could see him doing more roles like that in the future it's just I think he was he was just an incredibly multifaceted uh, performer yeah and I think even if you look at uh, motherless Brooklyn from geez three years ago now um he was oh, yeah, kind of he was good in that movie role. too um I, he was uh like the detective the the chief detective uh he he hired Edward Norton like he was he was his employer I don't know what you'd call that but <laughs> <laughs> but the same thing just kind of in that um similar like older older star um kind of grandfatherly role um, to much better effect than like Grandfather Terminator, which we saw a couple years ago. But uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, I think even you know, obviously the '90s were very big for him. But I think even the first half of the 2010s and the 2000s, he still had some pretty strong outings. So you know, I think for me, Looper's going to be a big one. Um, depending on what side of the fence you sit on, maybe Split <laughs> and Glass. Might be a big one for some people, um, but you know he was—he's consistently made a lot of movies, which is also impressive. Yeah, what is? I guess what is your favorite Bruce Willis movie? Is it Looper? Um, I would probably go Die Hard. Not to be basic, but yeah, I mean, I mean it's, it makes it's so much hard. sense. <laughs> yeah, if I had to choose another one, it might be Unbreakable, and that's also my bias again, but. Are you um, sure it wouldn't be a, a G.I. Joe Retaliation? That's it. That was the other one that was on the tip of my tongue. That's a really, really good one. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah, my, my number two would be Looper. Um, but Die Hard is just, it's iconic. Yeah, he is so good at Looper. Oh my gosh. I need to rewatch that sometime soon. I've been meaning to. He's just, wow. He's just really tremendous in that one. Yeah, so it's, it is 
sad to see him um, step away, especially because, you know, he hasn't really been in the limelight a lot lately because, like you said, he's been making all of these direct-to-video um, films. So I think Motherless Brooklyn's three years ago was the last time that I saw him in something theatrical, and he's only had one other non-theatrical movie, or one other theatrical movie in that time. So it is it is kind of sad to see him leave after he's already kind of quietly exited, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's he's he has been caught in that same space that Nick Cage seems to be kind of branching out of. I think Nick Cage was very um, clear about how he, he made a lot of these movies because he was in serious debt. And it looks like his new movie, was it The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent? I think that's what the title is, but it looks like he's like also playing off that kind of own persona of him where he's um, like buying all this like really expensive stuff because he's playing on his own person, his own public persona. But I think definitely a little different for Bruce Wilson why he was doing all these movies. But um, yeah, it's the, I'm looking at his IMDb now where he has like eight more coming out, which yeah. is crazy to think about um but it just kind of shows the space that he has been in where he's just he has been cranking his out and you know if, if it was for the betterment like the betterment of his family like who's like i don't know i'm just a guy on a podcast yeah. <laughs> i can't really judge people for their choices you know it's just i i think it's and i think that's also how i've kind of looked at this where it's you know it's just a, a good actor might be in a movie you're like why are they in that you know i think if there's other there's other reasons to all of this. So I think he's a great actor and he never had to make another movie ever again for us to kind of praise him as a legend. So that is true. And I, I think it's a good reminder that actors are also people, which, you you know, we don't really yes. think about. Shocking, um, right? They're, they're, <laughs> they're real people and they have health problems and they make career decisions and, and all that normal people stuff um, that we typically don't think about. Um, so this is a good reminder of that um, and just... The, this new story breaking and the way that it's been received and handled yeah so it's a bummer i really hope he you know he gets all the all the health um needs that he gets um he deserves all of that obviously um so wish him well so he's not dead so that's that's great that <laughs> you know i hope he kind of lives whatever healthy life he wants to have so we'll see but on that note, we'll switch gears and just kind of tackle the month of March. Uh, so this month, I uh, had a few big movies, a few not-so-big movies. I uh, had one movie that at one point just was never going to have a release date. Uh, so it was nice to see that movie actually exist. Um, but let's just go ahead and start with the big one, and that is going to be The Batman. Uh, so thumbs up, thumbs down. What's your, your general hot or cold take on the batman thumbs up i really like this movie um i was looking forward to it for a really long time um weirdly i kind of felt there was a similar anticipation i had for this movie to to joker which is really funny because <laughs> i think i've made my point very clear on this podcast how much i dislike that movie but in the lead up you think of it as wow, okay, they're doing like basically Taxi Driver with Joker. And I think that's a good idea in theory. And, you know, movie turned out to be what it was. But uh, I think that it, that as a pitch, I think is really fun. Or not fun, because that's kind of depressing material, but you get the idea. Uh, <laughs> so, and this one is basically tapped as the Batman is in Seven or Zodiac. I mean, 
I mean, there's so many like carvings that the um, the Riddler does that look just exactly like Zodiac letters. Dirty, so, dirty Batman. Yeah, really. Uh, so it's that like that idea was great to me. It's like, why not? I, I feel like after all of like the dark and depressing Batman movies we've gotten, that feels like a, a like a reasonable kind of end point for this, where we just kind of go straight, we go full on noir with a bat with Batman as the main character. Um, but this time it worked out really well because I think Matt Reeves is a great director and we can talk about him more later on but I think this movie is just it's very concise it knows what it wants to be at all times um, it certainly is a little ungangly and you know, it's three hours long um, but I was never bored that's for sure I think this movie weirdly does have a lot on its mind we can kind of get into spoiler territory later on but I think the way it positions the Riddler character I think is really fascinating and um, yeah it's just kind of a just a really good kind of just gripping thriller that also happens to have a guy wearing a bat suit in it. So <laughs> I really liked it. Yeah, I'm going to echo that. So this was one I and I can't remember exactly, but this was one of the movies that when we did the most anticipated for the year that either Brennan, Jonathan and I had in the exact same spot or it was like second place, third place, fourth place, something like that. Um, it was all very, very close. And if I were to ever update my list and take Mission Impossible 7 out of it, which I'm not ready to do for the 2022 list yet, <laughs> then the Batman uh, would would have been my second most anticipated for the year. Uh, much like Brennan, I'm a huge fan of uh, Matt Reeves' Apes movies because uh, he did Dawn and War, so I was very excited for this and really, really liked it. Um, I only seen it once so i don't know if i'm ready to be like this is better than the dark knight um i'm certainly not going to be a part of the weird the dark knight sucks now gang uh which i never thought would happen but those takes are all over twitter <laughs> um if there's enough batman kind of remakes or requels or whatever it's gonna happen eventually i guess right um but yeah this movie looks fantastic uh this movie sounds fantastic so just so I, I saw this in the Dolby Theater, um, which is big, big sound experience. And just the way that the whole room shook when the Batmobile fires up for the first time was like one of my favorite moments. Uh, that's how I wanted to feel when Tobey Maguire hobbled out of a portal in December. Um, and that's how I ended up feeling when I saw a blue fire coming out of a, a sports car that <laughs> Robert Pattinson had been working on for an hour and a half. Um so yeah, this movie looks fantastic. It sounds fantastic. Um, it manages an ensemble really well. I just love this movie. Yeah, it's a, uh, you talk about the sound in this movie. It is just kind of like amazingly well-crafted. I think of, we've, I think the Marvel old, like Sheen, I think has desensitized us to a lot of like blockbusters looking like shit. You know, <laughs> like there's a lot of these movies that just don't look very good. And then you see this movie where it's very like, I mean, it's Greg Frazier who just won Best, uh, Best Cinematography for Dune. So he's just at it again, just doing tremendous work here. But I love how there are a ton of scenes where, you know, like the 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 camera is just all blurry on the on the kind of all corners. You know, it's, you can only really focus in on one spot and everything is kind of just messy you don't quite know what to make of everything until the right thing comes into focus and that kind of works with just like the history of noir movies in general but i think it's just 
you know, it's just a choice. And then when you look at like the ultra high depth, everything in clear vision, but CGI of like yeah. the ending of Shang-Chi, which I feel bad because that movie's fun, but the third act is just very, very bad. Um, like, it's just like night and day, you know, it just looks so much better. And uh, it's just, I really admire Matt Reeves as a filmmaker too. Um, I think those Apes movies are really good. And I think I've been keeping up with like a lot of him throughout the interview process where he is very clear where I think a lot of directors of a certain age are kind of bemoaning like the opportunities they get of like movies on a budget to make, you know, I think he takes, he's looking at it the opposite way where he's saying, you know, like, I'll take 180 million to do a Batman movie. And I'm going to make it kind of how I want. And I'm going to make all these mentions to Chinatown and all these big noir movies that um, kind of influence me. And I'm going to throw those influences into this Batman movie and make this as much of quote unquote cinema as I can. You know, I think he's, he's kind of like, all right, these are the, this is the toolbox I'm given. All right, I'm going to go do it. I'm going to do it the best way I can. And it kind of, it does take like possibly silly material or possible, or just like you could take it and you could do like, you could do like a, like a Schumacher version of Batman. Right. But you can like one time when Batman was ever silly. (laughs) And you can take that. He takes that material and says, I'm going to ground this, but make this not not too self-serious i think there's actually some fun humor in this movie but um i'm gonna create my own world and my own um aesthetic here and i think it just it just really works i just i really admire all the work he does here yeah one thing i like about matt reeves is he's never been one to hide where his influences come from on any particular movie Uh, so there was an interview that he did you know, five years ago now for War for the Planet of the Apes. And he was talking about the production process for it. And he's like, so we made Dawn. And the first thing we did is we took two months and I forget the name of the writer, um, but they watched every movie ever was the what he said. And he is like, we just sat in the theater <laughs> on, the, on the back lot and we kept having them bring up movies because we wanted to like pull from the best of, of war on film and, and really make something cool out of it. Um through through the lens of Andy Serkis as an ape, and we got War, which is one of my favorite movies, um, one of the best blockbusters we got last decade, um, very high on that list for me. Um, and he did the same thing with the Batman, as he he pulls a lot, not just from Batman in general, but just from movies and movie making. And it's cool to see a a kind of like you mentioned a blockbuster that uses film grain and isn't ashamed of that. It's like yes, this isn't this perfect hd image all the time it's a guy like beating somebody in the middle of a dirty alley (laughs) why would we want this to be this (laughs) veneer (laughs) um so it is really nice to see that and one thing that really stood out for me is this is the first batman movie that i watched and i'm like yeah this could happen in real life um and i think there's, there's just little touches like just watching batman like work on the car and basically build that you know, on his own. I'm like, that would make sense. Nobody would know where that came from that way. Um, or things like the fact that he can't glide. And the first time he tries, he, you know, nearly knocks himself out on a tour bus. Um, and just, just small stuff like that, that really grounded it. The fact that Riddler is just like a QAnon message board kind of guy, uh, was frightening, but also like, no, this, this feels like something that, yeah, it's heightened reality, but it feels like, oh, this could, if this came on the news, I'd be like, 
and just a, another Tuesday. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's it is. I I totally agree with you there. I don't like it. Definitely is. It's a certain like very. It's definitely like a heightened reality, right? You know. Yeah. It's a vigilante bat guy. Yeah, he's got his. He's got all of his tools and whatnot, but it does. He Matt Reeves does like imbue it with this sense of um, this really good sense of reality, and um, it's just. I think it's also it's a really great testament to how good Robert Pattinson is in this movie, which um, I've like for the last decade thought he's like one of the best actors working, and he's taking a lot of what he's learned from kind of directors like Claire Denis or the Safties and kind of just like throwing that into a Batman movie, which I think is really cool. Like a lot of his Batman, you know, there's been a lot of talk where this is kind of year two of Batman where he's, he's formed, but not entirely formed, but this isn't his origin story. We're not going to see um, his parents die again, mm-hmm. even though they do that, that trauma kind of just kind of um, informs everything about his character, which, I mean, you really can't, you really can't get away from that in a Batman movie. Right. You know, but it's a lot of what his character is, is kind of what is left unsaid, or there's like a really good scene where he's talking to um, Jeffrey Wright's uh, Gordon, who I I thought was amazing in this movie too, but you know, he's, he's so emotionally stunted. So when when he says something like, you're a good cop, like, you know, that's really just him being like, you're my best friend and I love you, (laughs) you know? And it's, I think he's just uh, he's just just tremendous, and he uses that kind of depressive nine inch nails, or I guess Nirvana, because they use Nirvana in this movie. They use that kind of aesthetic really nicely, where it's not it's never a parody of itself, but um, he just uh, there is a, like a lot of humanity in that performance, and it can he can he makes you believe you know this bat guy is kind of a real person for a little bit, and I think that's kind of one of the more impressive feats this movie pulls off and i think the same thing applies in a lot of ways to paul dano and the riddler um like one thing that i really like is that the riddler is obviously very smart but he's not good at like the actual murder process and just like the like the frantic like way he tries to kill the mayor in in the very beginning of the movie right like (laughs) this is what a real human would act like he's not you know some superhuman you know, sneak in and kill you silently in a second. Like he struggles to beat somebody in the head, um, which I thought was just like an interesting angle. Cause when you see, you know, super villains in movies, they're like, bang, one gunshot, you're dead. Or like one punch, this person's dead. Um, and you know, like, like Bane's a good example for that. Like how many people does Bane just easily kill within seconds in the dark Knight rises? Um, and obviously Bane's a lot stronger than the Riddler, but I just like that kind of weaker human element to the Riddler. Which I thought was good, and I really like the personality of Gotham City and just the the attention to building Gotham City in this movie, because um, I think that's something that we saw a lot of in Batman Begins, but when you get into the Dark Knight or the Dark Knight Rises, it's Chicago and then Pittsburgh, and then there's not a lot of shine yep. on top of it to make it Gotham City. Whereas you know, say what you will about the Schumacher films, like man builds the hell out of Gotham City. He sure does. (laughs) (laughs) And same thing with Tim Burton. So it was nice to see a much more toned down version of that, but still a lot of attention and development and production design put towards the city itself. Yeah, it's 
really good. I think they filmed this in London, right? And so you can kind of see the London influence in there, but it is that kind of cool morphing of like London and New York and like Gothic architecture and kind of like a morphed version of Times Square. It looks really cool. And I think that's, you know, it's, it's a movie of kind of just indelible images from for the production design down to kind of how, how costumes look and certain lighting. Um, it's just, it's a lot of just really great actors getting to be in a wide canvas that has been like crafted just by some of the best craftspeople in the business. So it's just kind of like, sometimes that's kind of all I like. I like a need in a movie, just, you know, great people doing cool things on a screen that looks cool, <laughs> which sounds really <laughs> stupid, but it does. I think in this movie, you just kind of see like there is so much care in each shot and, and all the framing just makes a lot of sense. And it's just, yeah, it just, it's just fantastic. And then you have, yeah, you have John Turturro just showing up in one of his best roles that I can remember. And you have all like, you know, Peter Sarsgaard for two scenes popping up. Uh, it's just, yeah. Then you have Paul Dano playing a sicko, which is just the best, <laughs> you know, I just, I just really, I just really appreciate all the care in there. Yeah, it was, it, it, feels very big just in the number of things and the number of characters it was able to bring in because um, obviously Batman and, and Catwoman would be the just kind of the go-to and the Riddler um, but then you have a lot of the organized crime elements like who knew John Turturro was going to be such a big role in that movie until it came out because I didn't realize he was in the movie until yeah. I looked at IMDb before my screening and I was like oh cool I haven't seen him in a movie in forever <laughs> yeah um because I don't, I think there was maybe one shot of him in one of the trailers, but I didn't think he was going to be a major role in that movie at all, um, which I really enjoyed. I, a hot take, but I don't always like knowing what exactly is going to happen in the movie before I see it. Shocking. Wow. <laughs> yeah, that's, it is true though, because I think, I mean, there's a lot of twists and turns in this movie has, so we can get into those if you want, but um, it's just, there is something to be said about just having someone you know pop up for a scene or two. Like I think Peter Skarsgård is a, I think we all people, even if you're not super into movies, you just know who that guy is. He just he's just really good. And um just having him for two scenes, you know, just kind of having someone like that in that role informs more about that character than if you just hired some random person who's a good actor, but you don't really have a history with. And so, you know, like Skarsgård, he has a history of playing like these sleazy people, you know, so putting him as the DA in kind of this rundown Gotham, it's like, oh, I get it, you know, <laughs> it's just, it just really, really works. And so, yeah, the casting is just, is really fantastic. Um, even down to, I forget what the, the cops name, but that cop who has the raspy voice, I've seen him in so many movies, yeah. I don't know what his name is, but he's just kind of one of those guys where you cast that person in that role and that role instantly becomes more memorable. You know, like there's so many different uh, like other movies where they just throw a random person as the police chief and you don't really remember him. But that guy is like, he's just different at like at a base level and he's also a good actor. So he just, he gives you much more in those few lines of dialogue. It's just, it's just really great. Yeah, and, and I agree. I think it was just a really solid effort on every front. Um, and like I said, I'm not, I'm not quite ready to be like, yeah, this is the best Batman movie ever, 
Uh, but it's a contender, and I think if you're contending with the Dark Knight, that's a decent enough compliment in it as is. <laughs> yeah, it's there's definitely like a lot of explaining going on to make yeah. <laughs> sure the audience gets what's happening. You know, there's it's really there's some pretty uh, unintentionally hilarious moments where they're talking about the the clue, which is like the rat with the rat with wings or whatever, mm-hmm. and they keep they keep explaining and like they're like oh a penguin and then (laughs) jeffrey wright's like a penguin doesn't have wings or whatever and it's like yes thank you (laughs) thank you movie i I understand (laughs) and then um uh totoro is kind of saddled with some of that as well but you know like that's that's another reason why you just cast such great people let them cook because you can kind of get away with it you know jeffrey wright's one of our best actors and you just let him um just kind of cook for a little bit and you're like this is this is fine i don't care you know um i was surprised actually how much we got of him in this movie it really is kind of like a gordon and batman movie together which i thought was really fun um but yeah and then you have colin farrell just in 100 pounds of makeup <laughs> having the time of his life and it's just it's just kind of the energy you need from all these side characters it's a good penguin origin story it really was it's, I mean, it's kind of, I mean, it has three hours of time. So there's, yeah. <laughs> um, there's a lot going, a lot of different threads here, but it doesn't really feel like it's ever like, cause you know, like there are like our other examples of, we need to do this version of the IP again and have it kind of go off and you can do all these 10 different movies with it. Like, you know, like the Tom Cruise mummy movie where that's clearly a launch pad for 15 different other movies. <laughs> Um, but this never feels like that. It feels very cohesive and it just, it just kind of works. And the way it's exploring this underbelly, you know, it would make sense for all these characters to collide and come in and out of frame as they do. So it's just, it just really works. Uh, yeah. Can't get enough of Paul Dano just being a weirdo as well. So that's just kind of close to my heart. <laughs> <laughs> so before we move on from the Batman, so according to the timeline of this movie, uh, Bruce's parents were killed in the year 2001. But uh, what movie do you think they were watching when they left the theater? Oh, I saw that. Isn't it a possibility that it's like The Fast and the Furious or something? It could be The Fast and the Furious. A lot of people were, were thinking Shrek. Uh, the first Harry Potter could be there. Personally, I think his parents took him to see Spy Kids. Um, <laughs> it could be the Planet of the Apes reboot, maybe. There's options. Maybe fun. they were watching yeah. Legally Blonde. That would be great. That'd be really, really good. Or what if it's just like some terrible forgotten movie? It's I mean, I can't think of it because it's forgotten. Yeah, or something like that. <laughs> just they're like, uh, all right, I guess we'll waste time and go see this random movie. And then, uh, oops. <laughs> uh, yeah, it could be. I think The Mummy Returns came out that year. So there's options. One of my favorite guilty pleasures ever, by the way. Well, yeah, I, I will stand that. It's that movie. Oh my god! I mean, this everyone knows the CGI at the end is just hilarious. But I just, you know, I have a soft spot for the for for that movie for <laughs> just many different reasons. <laughs> All right, so we'll go ahead and leave the Batman for now, um, and we'll we'll touch on after Yang, and I'll let you take that one away. Kind of, there's a lot of plot at the beginning of this movie, so it starts with. Um, kind of its central premise where it's this far or i guess the close future where ai is kind of um 
part of your family. You get these, you basically buy from this future Apple company. You basically buy artificial intelligence from them and they are kind of part of your family. And uh, Colin Farrell's family bought their um, AI, which is the titular Yang, uh, because uh, they adopted a Chinese daughter and uh, Yang is also Chinese and also teaching her about her kind of her heritage and she and he's filling that kind of void for her in her life. But um, yeah, when kind of when in this universe, when they break down, you got to take them to the genius store, get them fixed. <laughs> so that's what Colin Farrell does. And he's kind of dealing with uh, his daughter being very upset that, you know, he doesn't have Yang anymore and she really misses him. Um, and you kind of get the set, you, when he goes there, you realize that um, we, we try to open up kind of like the, the hardware or the memory banks of these robots. It's kind of like a black box and it's kind of against the rules. So you kind of think it's kind of leading towards this kind of weird kind of thrillery like oh where, where is this happening are we gonna like gonna go on this surveillance state thriller movie about robots and it never really turns into that ever again it really it's kind of just uh, he goes to like this black market dealer who kind of opens up the uh robot and it's really just a, an excuse to open up the memory banks and kind of take a take in what this robot was kind of like took hold of like what the, the most important memories of this robot were and it's really just from there, this movie's very quiet, never comes up, never goes above a whisper. It's from there, Colin Farrell is reflecting on the robot's reflections of time he spent with this family. And it really is a lot of him reflecting on memories that he didn't realize were important until now and kind of recontextualizing them and kind of figuring out why they weren't important and what they actually do mean and all the meanings that are in there. Um, so it's kind of, there really isn't a lot to explain about this movie. It's very experiential. And I reviewed it out of Sundance and said as much where it's just, you kind of just sit with it, you know, and it's, it's never, never in a rush. And I really appreciate that about this movie. And it's like this 90 minute think piece almost about our relationship to technology and family. And it's just really good. It's really well constructed. And I love the way it kind of mixes, um, like concrete with greenery in this future. It's like a really fascinating construction of how it looks. And yeah, I just, it's just really, it's really good. I highly recommend it. I kind of don't even, there really isn't much more to say about it, honestly. You just kind of have to dive in and just kind of sit with it. And that's kind of all it wants you to do. And then you kind of think about it from there. So it's, it's a really terrific movie. I think it's on Showtime. So if you have Showtime, watch it, I guess. But it's, it's just a, it's a really terrific movie. Nice. Yeah, so that's um, something that I did miss because um, it came out the weekend that the Batman came out. So I saw the Batman and then I moved. <laughs> but uh, it's definitely it's something that I want to check out. And there's another one that we'll get to in a little while um, that I haven't seen yet, but that I do really want to check out uh, whenever I get a chance. But uh, we can go ahead and move on to another one that I'll turn over to you. And that'll be Fresh. Yeah, I think Fresh came out this, this same weekend, right? This was a really packed I weekend. I believe so. So it was. Um, it came out the same weekend that Pam and Tommy ended. Um, speaking of Sebastian Stan, he's big time for Sebastian Stan on Hulu. No less. <laughs> um, so yeah, this was a big. Fresh was a big movie out of Sundance. It was kind of one of the buzzier titles there, and it is kind of one of those movies where, if I explain it, it kind of gives away the fun of it. Um, I, it's kind of an people seem to like this movie i'm kind of more mixed to negative on it i didn't really think it was 
particularly fun. I kind of wanted more from it, but um, it kind of goes, you can kind of, I'll kind of explain the, begin, the, the beginning of this movie and then you'll kind of have to fill in the blanks from there. But it's really, there's this, this girl who is kind of just, you know, she's struggling with modern dating. She goes on a date with this guy from an app and you realize that he's just kind of, he just kind of sucks. He wears a scarf and he's just kind of, you can, he's kind of mean. Um, so she's struggling with dating and she runs into uh, Sebastian Stan in, in, in a grocery store. He's this really nice doctor guy. He seems like he's the perfect man. And they go and they, they kind of go out and have this like little like passionate spree together. And then, uh, then the movie takes a turn to say the least. Um, it's really funny because this movie, the, the opening credits don't come on until half an hour in the movie. Because at that point is like a is like a crazy shift. This movie takes a big turn um, and becomes something uh, definitely more devious and vile. Um, but it's weird. I kind of wanted it to be more alienating in the way in the places that this goes. Um, I wish I could talk more, but I really don't want to spoil it. <laughs> um, I it's it's kind of one of those where I want it. It's it's kind of inviting you to be like, oh, isn't this like so? gross and weird and i'm not and i sit there maybe this is me because i'm desensitized and i've seen a bunch of just gross shit in a movies <laughs> before but i'm kind of just sitting there like that's it yeah that's all you're going to do with this premise uh i wanted it to kind of be more alienating and even more grotesque i think that would have been i think a better kind of summation of the ideas it's going after um but yeah it's a uh, it's certainly a trip uh i wouldn't say i was bored even if i don't really like it uh, so, you know, it's Sebastian Stan's having a great time. Uh, I don't really want to say more than that. <laughs> so he's, I, I like his, he's definitely doing some or trying to go after some interesting projects outside of the MCU, which um, I appreciate. He's going for it in this movie and I like that a lot, but yeah, it's kind of, it's a mixed bag. Yeah. And I think he falls into kind of the same availability that like Mark Ruffalo has. Um, where you are part of the ensemble, you're a big part of the movies, but you don't necessarily have to do, you know, your solo film every year. So you have a lot more time to go and do these interesting smaller projects, um, which I think is the place to be in the MCU. Because if you're like an, a Chris Evans or a Downey, you're having to film Marvel once a year, every year. But if you're in, you know, one of these slightly to the side roles and you have time, you, not only do you have the time, but then you also have the MCU influence and just popularity to be able to put yourself in those rooms so good for him yeah i like he i think he's a really good actor and it's kind of one of those things where when you're when you're stoic hero man in an mcu movie it's like like they're good actors but it's, but what's like the what's the breadth of their skills like are they these this limited kind of leading man guy or they can they branch off and do other things and uh, i think he's definitely He's very multifaceted as an actor. I think he's really fun. And he's, it seems like this, at this point, he's using the name that he's kind of made for himself as the Winter Soldier to kind of make some of these, these smaller indie projects a little more kind of like mainstream, which is, which is cool. You know, I think it, you, we could kind of see like a, like a new wave of kind of all of these superhero actors kind of going branching out and making smaller movies more marketable you know and then maybe there's like a cool indie movement out of that when they kind of go off and branch out and do these fun things so it kind of seems like that's what he's up to so that's that's kind of fun to see so we'll go ahead and move on to something that we've both seen uh which is pixar's turning red 
Um, so this was another victim of the Disney Plus must debut everything uh, Pixar mm-hmm. <laughs> issue, uh, which, you know, we've, we've talked a little bit about that before. But um, so this did drop on Disney Plus, um, I believe, the second week of March. Um, and this does very much feel different from most Pixar movies, you know, even something else that is recent and is done by sort of the newer wave of Pixar, like Luca. Um, and I don't mean that as a derogatory thing. Um, I think that should be celebrated that, you know, there's a there's a new team coming up and taking the reins. Um, and so I, it wasn't for me, but I thought it was fine. Um, and I'm happy to see Pixar doing something that, you know, is, you know, put together by a different creative team and put together for a different audience. And you know, telling a very specific story that they wanted to tell. So I think it should be applauded for that. Yeah, it's, I really like, I like this movie a lot. Um, it's, it is, it is, I think that one of the big things about this movie is kind of how um, personal and specific it is, like you mentioned, where I can't imagine five years ago, Pixar making a movie about a, um, an Asian girl in Canada in 2002 specifically yeah. <laughs> i think it is right very specifically um, 2002 <laughs> yeah and it's i like it's it was like wow they really i can't believe disney allowed this to happen and i think the the animation of this movie is really cool i think it's one of the better looking uh pixar movies of recent memory where because it has a little bit of anime influence as well and i think that it's uses that really well with the the red the giant red panda that comes into play here but um yeah i think most importantly there isn't you kind of look through the filmography of pixar and they've made so many great movies and are kind of kind of in a lot of ways the the leader of the animation space they don't make a lot of movies that are specifically for young girls um and i think this is just i think this is a really good step in that direction where it's just i mean how many times have we seen the 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 father-son movie and we don't really have a lot of like mother good contemporary mother mother daughter stories and i think this movie hits on that really really well with um i think it's sandra O oh is the is the mom i think she's terrific yeah. in this movie uh it's it's a really good cultural um kind of uh, movie as well and um or i guess kind of a, a really good cultural immersion in that sense and i just think it's very i it's Clearly, it's clear that the director Domai she um, just had a lot of kind of her own life kind of into this movie, and I really, I really appreciate that. I, I don't, I don't know if this is like a, a favorite Pixar of mine. I think it's great, definitely like one of the higher tier ones. But um, it's just really cool to kind of see this very personal touch in a movie made by Disney. So <laughs> it's yeah. really nice, and I think it is, it is very stylized. Um, which I think I think Luca was too in a lot of ways, and so it is nice to see them kind of break from their traditional Pixar look and feel to everything. Um, just on on top of the story itself being different, the world and the characters and the way that they're built up felt very different as well. Yeah, and that's kind of the thing where I think there has been there there have been a few criticisms of Pixar. One of them is kind of like the sameness of all of the way they look. You know, it's the that CGI animation kind of does look kind of the same from movie to movie in a lot of senses but i think i think this is really there is kind of like a little bit of like a mitchell's versus the machines or like inside this uh, in the the spider-verse um as well that's where they kind of blend a little bit of 2d in there in some certain situations and it looks really good um 
I just thought this was just a very like, you know, it's not like the most high stakes movie Pixar has ever made. And, you know, it never really had to be that either. I think that's just kind of fun. It's, it's, I'm happy if, you know, if they want to do Lightyear, that's fine. But give me one of these every so often and I'm happy with what Pixar's doing. Yeah. So that is turning red. Um, and then uh, we'll go kind of rapid fire because we still have quite a few movies to cover. But um, so many movies. Speaking so of cinema. streaming, <laughs> we had The Atom Project, uh, which is a Netflix movie that I didn't know anything about until I put it on and that I haven't really thought about since. Uh, so it's pretty standard Netflix movie. Uh, it's another Sean Levy, Ryan Reynolds collaboration. So they did Free Guy uh, back in August or September, one of the two, uh, which is a movie that I really enjoyed. Uh, this one, not so much. Uh, I thought this movie was fine. Like, it's very it's very adequate. Um, it's an entertaining hour and a half, but there's not much to it. It's just kind of there. Uh, CGI, young Catherine Keener is horrifying. Um, <laughs> that's, that's, that's it. <laughs> Um, Colin, this is this movie's a giant piece of shit. Uh, <laughs> I it was funny. I did a big 180 on Free Guy. I th- I thought it was kind of fun, and then you know I thought about it more, and I realized I just don't really like that movie. And Sean Levy and Ryan Reynolds, Ryan Reynolds must be stopped. Um, <laughs> and I felt there's like a little bit of Free Guy in here where they they have the lightsaber in there, and I was like, okay, we're doing we're doing this cultural kind of wink got it okay um it feels like it's a mix of many different amblin science fiction movies and it felt very fake to me in all situations so that's it i also don't have much to say about this movie but i'm definitely more negative than you (laughs) listen i am not ashamed to like free guy and hate no way home and i will die that's okay you do you colin you're better for it (laughs) (laughs) um sean levy is a director that i don't think i'm really like man i just love this guy's style but whenever i look at his filmography i'm like i've probably seen a higher percentage of his movies than i have like many directors out there because he just he makes a lot of things um and i do like that he's well with the exception of deadpool that he just got announced for he's mainly done his own franchises um or at least spearheaded um, reboots in that sense. So he did like Cheaper by the Dozen, uh, which was like the formative movie for my family back in in ye old 2003. Um, <laughs> that of course, Night at the Museum is probably what he's most famous for. Um, so I just, he makes very good popcorn movies in my opinion. Um, this was on the lower end of the movies of his that I've seen, but I thought it was fine. Yeah, he's a, he's like a really, he seems like he's a great, guy to work with if you're a big studio you know like he's probably going to take your notes and he's going to try to make it work as much as possible and I wouldn't say he's a bad director you know like I don't I think a lot of the stuff recently is like it's kind of like fake emotional or like it tries to like have a real heart but I I still kind of see right through it but you know I do think he is he's much better than like a lot of just kind of like studio for hire guys you know he does he does try to put like his own touch on stuff so you know, all these directors are just trying to navigate the, the studio system and he keeps getting work. So I'd say he's doing something right. Just just keep doing you, Sean Levy. Yeah, keep getting them checks. There's nothing wrong with that at the end of the day, you know? <laughs> um, so next up, so this is a movie that wasn't on my radar at all until the week it came out. 
and then everybody loved it. And I've tried to see it twice, and both times the timing just didn't work. So eventually, I will make my way to either a theater or my couch to watch X. Uh, but I'm not quite there yet. X is fun. I really enjoyed this movie. It's the best Texas, Texas Chainsaw Massacre movie that isn't a Texas Chainsaw Massacre movie. Because it's it basically is one, except Leatherface never shows up. That's kind of how I uh, look at this movie. Because it's... Um, it's a really fun, you know, salacious premise where it's this ragtag group is going out into the Texas countryside to go make a porno and they, they go stay as one does. Yeah. As one does. Right. And this takes place, I think 1979 specifically. Um, so it's kind of like the post Vietnam kind of feelings of the country, which is like a lot with what Texas Chainsaw Massacre, those movies, that first movie at least, uh, plays with, because it's, you know, it's a lot about how the country country was in very much in change and a lot of kind of good things i guess were starting to happen or there were a lot of kind of like quote-unquote radical things that were going on in the country that were kind of making their way into the culture but then you go into you go to this the wrong backwood area and you kind of run into just pure horror and that's still there and that and it's kind of a you know it's kind of a timeless thing even though it's very rooted in the time it's set in but um so this movie is very similar where it's they have these uh this group it, they're on the lot of this very this very old peculiar peculiar old couple um especially pearl who is might turn into some fun like a horror legend at this point and a really fun character um and uh kind of shit goes crazy as they're filming their their porn movie and it's just it's really fun it's really it's smartly crafted um mia goth is the lead in this movie and it's kind of the point now where if she's in a movie i'm very very excited i think she has really good taste and she likes to start a lot of fucked up movies <laughs> so you gotta know if she's in it that it's gonna be a trip whether good or not um i think she was in suspiria a few years ago and right after that uh, she was in high life uh, so it's just the two very fucked up great movies. Uh, she's also, I think she's hilarious. She was in, she was in the, the Emma remake with Anya Taylor-Joy. I thought she was really funny in that movie. So I think she's just amazing as an actress. And she kind of gets like a really like near iconic horror, like heroine role in here. She's just fantastic. So I couldn't, um, this movie kind of left me, left me wanting in a few situations, um but it's really fun a really fun time at the theater so highly recommended nice um yeah i'm looking forward to checking it out like i said it just has not happened yet um but we'll see uh but the next one is something that we've both gotten the chance to check out uh so this movie was pulled from release i want to say like fall of last year and wasn't given a release date at all, which is typically a bad sign. And then probably last week or two of February, um, it got a March release date, uh, which is also normally a bad sign when there's just no lead up to anything. <laughs> um, but Deepwater does exist. Uh, this is a Disney movie through uh, the 20th Century Fox acquisition, uh, which, I don't know, might might piss off parents or something i guess everybody's mad about something so <laughs> um, to the list. but this is the movie that brought ben affleck and anna de armas together 
Um, a lot of people have called it Gone Girl in reverse, which is somehow accurate but not accurate at the same time. Um, hmm. It features Laurel Howery, which immediate bonus points for any movie that features him. Um, <laughs> so I don't know. I, there, there are things about this movie that I liked a lot, and there are things about this movie that I didn't like a lot. Um, so I'm, I'm not quite like 50, 50 on it, but I don't, I don't know. I'm very mixed on how I felt walking away from this movie. I don't know about you. Yeah. I think that's probably the correct response. Uh, I had a lot of fun with this movie in in spite of itself in a lot of situations. Um, it definitely feels like it's a movie that was like taken away from Adrian line at some point because the third act just goes off the rails and it's, kind of like shockingly bad um but you know like there's like a really like there's glimmers of a like a deeply fucked up movie in here that is really good um i it really does feel like there was like re-edits and stuff to throw in here because it doesn't feel like it's kind of incomprehensible at points you know but it is like there's some like i think ben affleck's really good in this movie like he's he's very knowing in his performance where he's like there's a lot of really fun jokes that he gets to rattle off and he's also uh, as you come to learn later like later in the movie he's kind of twisted in a lot of different ways a little bit and uh um and adarmus i thought was really good in this movie as well um yeah it is kind of it's it's another one where it's just i kind of it's it's not as um it's like it's not a good movie i really liked it and I kind of want people to watch it for themselves without me saying much, but then also they could come away saying that movie was terrible. Why did you make me do that? So it's kind of a, it's a, it's a hard one to talk about. I think. <laughs> yeah. And so I think the gone girl parallels, I understand where they come from. Makes you have Ben this, Affleck. That's this, easy. Yeah. That's it's literally like, Oh, here's Ben Affleck and, his wife is a murderer, maybe someone's a murderer aesthetic, which, uh, well, sorry, for Gone Girl in Reverse, it's more Ben Affleck is the murderer this time. Um, even though the point of Gone Girl was Ben Affleck is the murderer until he wasn't the murderer. Um, but that's a different conversation. Yeah, but right. um, <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I, like I said, it's, it's very mixed. Um, I think the performances are both pretty great. Um, I just like Ben Affleck as an actor in general, and I think I do too. aside from Batman, he's had a pretty strong few years. So the last duel is one of my favorite Affleck roles because he feels like oh, he's he's in on a joke movie for hours. <laughs> he's in on a joke <laughs> that none of the other characters are, um, and he's like our window to the to the modern modern world in that movie. And I just love what he does with that role. Um, uh, the way back was right before the literally the last movie I saw before the pandemic started, um, which is another sad Affleck movie, but he was great in that as well. And I really enjoyed his performance in this one. Um, I really enjoyed Anade Armistice as well, um, just to see a different energy from her because um, her her roles to this point, you know, and especially looking at what did you say her biggest role is Blade Runner or Knives Out at this point. I'd say probably Knives Out, because she was the lead there, right? Yeah, and I, I think in both of those movies, there's a sense of naivety and almost innocence to her character, and mm -hmm. it's a much different context in Blade Runner, because she doesn't actually exist. Um, but for her. Yeah. 
but I think this was a big twist on what I've seen her as at this point. Um, and even going way back to War Dogs, who else remembers that classic? Oh, yeah, movie? she's in that movie. Um, I totally forgot. That was the first Ana de Armas exposure I ever had. Um, but it's just a much different role for her, and I think she handles it pretty well. Yeah, it's she is really she's really hamming it up like in a in the best way possible i think because it's also interesting because this is adrian Lyons' first movie in 20 years and he's kind of like i don't know like the, the, the godfather of the the erotic thriller you know because he, <laughs> he he like he did unfaithful nine and a half weeks and he'd be back to like the like the big one fatal attraction um we did we did a remake of lolita in there too like he is like this is kind of like his his thing um and it's kind of his return to that and i think he's a i have always thought he's a very very good director and there's a lot a lot lot of really fun like very smartly composed shots in here of like a duality and like water and things like that and it i don't know it's you kind of see like all the good that's in this movie like there are really good scenes that are that happen in this movie that are really creepy um, especially with Ben Affleck, um, and then you kind of look at look at them in the broader context of the movie, and it's like, wait, this feels like this should have been in the third act of this movie, but it's in the first thirty minutes. But okay, and then wait, where, what was happening with this third act? Like, what's going on here? Why is Tracy Letts complaining about texting? <laughs> you know, it's very. It feels like this was kind of hacked up, but even still, I still had a lot of fun with this movie and i think it's kind of a fairly self-aware but also very interesting look at kind of a really fucked up relationship and control and um i think there's a lot there and also ben affleck's character like kind of invented drone warfare which is a thing that happens in this movie so it's just it's hilarious it's like really hilarious at times too uh, so it's kind of just, it's one of those where I, I, sometimes I just enjoy seeing A-list actors just go, go for it on screen. So this is one of those situations for me. I had a lot of fun with it. <laughs> yeah. And I also, quick note, I also really like when Tracy lets shows up in things and he does that. Yeah, me too. So. It's kind of like, you're never, you're never upset when Tracy Letts shows up. You're like, great, bring it. Yeah. He's a, he's a cool guy to see pop in every now and then. Um, but yeah, that is Deep Water. Um, and then we'll move on to another thriller, but of a very different variety. Um, and that is The Outfit. So are you familiar with the synopsis for this one at all? Nope, no idea. Okay, so Mark Rylance is, and this is very specific, he is not a tailor. He is a cutter. Um, and when you see that movie, that's okay. like a, a big scene. So now I know the difference between a tailor and a cutter. So he cuts <laughs> he cuts suits, um, and he, he he puts them together, um, which I thought was really cool because I never like, you know, I I don't see many people making suits from scratch, and there's a big chunk of this movie um, that is just like following him around the shop as he measures and cuts and makes a suit, and I'm like, oh, that's pretty cool, you know, that's a, a nice little thing you might not know about, uh, but basically, he's a he's a cutter and a, a suit. A soup shop owner um, in this little street on Chicago, little on a little street in Chicago, um, where he has a little black box and mobsters and just criminals of 
any variety come and they drop letters in there and then they can come later and pick them up. And at some point, uh, they get a mysterious letter in there from the outfit, um, which is vaguely connected to the, the organization that Al Capone actually started in real life. Um, Interesting. I think it's a much more fantasized version of it because uh, it's much more like spooky spy-ish, um, but maybe that's just mobster talk. Um, so basically, it freaks the mobsters out and two of them end up hiding out in the shop and then it just follows the rest of the night as Mark Rylance and his assistant slash uh, receptionist Zoe Deitch um, just interact with these mobsters that are coming in and just deal with um, the 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 war that kind of erupts on their street around them. Um, so it's nice because it all takes place in this one shop. Um, so it almost feels like a play in that sense where you're not ever really changing locations. Um, but the movie does a really good job of just exploring more of the shop and just all the the little oddities and, and cool things that you get when you're a, a cutter and you make suits. Um, I mean, I, I can't overhype how interesting it was to watch somebody make a suit. Like I, I probably enjoyed that part <laughs> of this movie more than anything else. Um, but it actually is a, a pretty well-rounded thriller, um, just as you're figuring out who are these people that are coming in, you know, who's actually pulling the strings, who's the outfit, um, all that fun stuff that you get when you lock uh, mobsters in a room with a British person and his secretary. Um, but I really enjoyed it. It's not the best movie I'll ever watch, but it was up there for the 15 or so 2022 movies I've seen so far. Um, so I, I had a good time with it. How are um, Dylan O'Brien and Zoe Deutsch in this movie? So I typically like Zoe Deitch as an actress when she shows up in things. Um, uh, just off the top of my head, Zombieland 2 is kind of the, the big one that comes to mind. <laughs> but she was actually the only performance in this movie that I really never bought into. She just feels anachronistic. Like everyone, everyone kind of walks onto the set with a 1950s vibe and she just doesn't have it. It's like, oh, you can put, you know, this actress in a 1950s appropriate dress, but the the voice, the the word choice just wasn't quite there for me. And maybe that was intentional, but I just, I never really bought into her as that. Dylan O'Brien was fun. Um, you know, I haven't really seen a lot from him outside of whichever Maze Runner movie I've seen, which I think was the second one. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they all run together. At some point, it was one where they weren't actually in a maze. They were like in a, a zombie wasteland or something like that. I think um, it's the second one. The Scorch Trials, right? Is that what it's called? Did that I just make that up? right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but he did fine. Um, I think Mar Mark Rylance is the real MVP because this movie really does rest on his shoulders. Um, and then there's a... So Dylan O'Brien is like... So, so you know the way in The Godfather that there's like the Corleone family... And then Tom Hagen is like part of the family, but not really. I may have seen that movie once or twice. Go on. So, uh, so Dylan O'Brien is part of the Corleone family, or part of the family, right? And then there's this other character, um, played by Johnny Flynn, who's, you know, he's he's like a street street urchin that they found and adopted into the family, kind of thing. Um, and I actually really enjoyed his character in this movie. I think he was one of the standouts for me uh, because he. And I don't want to get into spoilers because um, 
you know, this is being a thriller. If you get into spoilers, you take away a lot of the fun of the movie. Um, but but he has a, a really nice edge to him uh, that really gives this movie a lot of the momentum it needs at times. Uh, because you are staying in one location, um, it can be hard to keep the momentum going when your characters, you know, really aren't moving around or having anything to run to or from as much. But I enjoyed it. It was a good time. Cool. I haven't seen it, but I do really want to. I do really want to check it out. I weirdly have an interest in Dylan O'Brien. No explanations. Nice. Don't know why, <laughs> but I think he's just an interesting. He's an interesting uh, kind of lead that we have now. I like when he shows up and stuff. All right. So with that, we will move on to Windfall, and I'll let you take that one away. Yeah, I was looking forward to this movie. It's a three-hander, I guess. Is that a thing? I guess I've heard two-hander. Right. That's, I'm going to go with it. Anyway, um, so it stars Jason Siegel, um, and you got your boy, Jesse Plemons, in there as well, Heck and yeah. uh, Lily Collins. And so Jason Siegel is, he's on like this, the ranch of um, this tech billionaire who Jesse Plemons plays. And he thinks that him and his wife, Siegel thinks that Clemens and Collins are away for whatever. They have many different houses. He doesn't think he's gonna, they're going to be there. So he sneaks onto their property and, and tries to um, steal a few things. Uh, and then they show up for an impromptu weekend. And then they notice him before he can escape. And then he kind of just traps them there in the house. And it's kind of just the three of them dealing with being with each other until... Jesse Plemons can get Siegel enough money for him to leave and kind of start his life outside of crime. And that's kind of it for this movie. Um, you you kind of keep waiting for another shoe to drop. It's like, is there some kind of bigger thing going on here? And there really isn't. But um, and I think a lot of people are kind of like dismissing this movie as kind of slightly disposable because of that. And that's probably fair. But I think this is like a, like a very... This is like the ultimate letterbox three out of five movie. Just <laughs> very, very solid across the board. And you have three really good actors kind of just doing their thing and they get to all play off each other. The dialogue is pretty good. Um, and that's kind of it. And it kind of works as like a play and it kind of does it, the score kind of harkens back to, I guess, like the golden age of Hollywood. And that's kind of how the, the movie also plays out. And um, I think it's just, it's a really good, it makes this massive ranch feel very claustrophobic in a way because you know, none of these people can leave or else you know Siegel's gonna gonna do something to them or at least threaten them that he's gonna do something and it's just you know it's just very sturdy it works and uh I really like you know Jason Siegel has not really been around the last decade or so he's just I think he's really great and forgetting Sarah Marshall it's just a very special movie to me <laughs> so it's cool to kind of see him get a good role here and i think he's really terrific and so uh yeah it's just kind of it is kind of one of those netflix movies that you might you kind of do forget about but that doesn't mean it's not doesn't have its merits so yeah it's decent nice decent that's uh that's how every every director wants their movie to be <laughs> <laughs> yeah sorry sorry charlie mcdowell your movie's decent <laughs> yeah and i feel like that that's kind of encapsulated a lot of the movies on this list including the one that i wanted to talk about next <laughs> so that is the lost city so there was one aspect of the trailers that convinced me that this wasn't going to be a terrible movie 
And that was it. Yep. (laughs) So (laughs) Brad Pitt has done bad movies, but Brad Pitt does not do many uninteresting movies. So the fact that he was such a presence in this movie that felt like it came out of like 2004 um, had me a little bit excited. I was like, you know, I wonder like, what are they going to do with this? And I think everyone involved in this movie is just having a good time making this movie, which just carries it so much further than it should be. Cause it's a very, it's a very basic like romance. Uh, I know that's obviously making fun of a lot of like cheap dollar store romance novels um, while falling into a lot of those same traps. Um, also just a crazy premise. Like in what world is a, a cover model of, five dollar paperbacks like a a superstar (laughs) (laughs) um but they just have a lot of fun with it like daniel radcliffe um is kind of in that same category as like robert pattinson um although i would assume he made a lot more money off of harry potter than pattinson did off of twilight oh i'm sure um but he's just having fun with it like he you can tell he's just eating up getting to be this just very quirky, eccentric bad guy. Um, one thing that really surprised me about this movie is how brutal it is. Like, characters will just die with no warning and no, like, remorse. And just, like, violently even. <laughs> um, so that's an aspect of the movie. And, like, in those scenes where Radcliffe is on screen while that happens, like, you can see he's just having a great time with it. Um and you know it's nice to see Channing Tatum make a comeback. Uh, one thing that I haven't seen people talk about a lot is how the age gap between Channing Tatum and Sandra Bullock is used in a positive way. Because you know the the trick with Hollywood is you know once you're like thirty five, you're not the leading romantic woman anymore. Or if you are, there's going to be like a lot of attention brought to the age there. Whereas you know that doesn't really happen in this movie and they very believably play as each other's love interests, um, which I thought was a a nice thing to see where, you know, women are, you know, still treated like they exist after the age of 45. So overall it's mid, but fun. Yeah. That's I I wanted to see this movie too. It's, it's another one. I have a very weird fascination with Channing Tatum. I just think he's really great. And it was kind of a, it was kind of a bummer to see him kind of disappear for, for a while. You know, he didn't, it wasn't really in things, but now he's, he's making his way back. And you could kind of say that he's revitalizing the box office. You know, Dog was weirdly successful at the, at the theaters. And so is this movie. This movie opened really well. So maybe it's everyone missed Channing Tatum, you know, <laughs> he was gone from since 2017. So, you know, since maybe. Kingsman. So, you know, maybe more Channing Tatum in everyone's lives is a good thing. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's uh, he's making a pretty decent comeback because he hasn't he hasn't appeared in live action since the Golden Kingsman, the Golden Circle. That was twenty seventeen. Uh, he had the uh, the teabagging Fortnite cameo in Free Guy, and then now he's back leading the Lost City. Um, which, you know, this movie actually did pretty well in its first week. So right now, it's almost made up its uh, production budget. So it's not going to be a runaway hit. But in a box office, it's still trying to figure itself out. It's done pretty solid. 
Movies are back. Cinema's here. It was Channing Tatum and, and Sandy Bullock. That's all we needed <laughs> this whole time. That's the antidote we needed. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was, it was a fun time. It's nice to see something that's not based on something else. Um, and also, you know, Channing Tatum's got Doc out right now, too. So he's coming out pretty strong quarter one of 2022. He's doing it. And he's got Magic Mike 3 coming out. Yep. Which is currently filming. Can't wait. Can't wait for that. Soderbergh, looking forward to it. Just going to be, it's just, I'm ready. I'm ready for all that Channing content. It's, uh, it's Channing's world. And then Brad Pitt and Sandra Bullock are going to reunite in Bullet Train later this year. So. Is Sandy in that movie? I didn't Brad realize Pitt? she was. Yeah, I think she has a minor role. Brad Pitt's in like six or seven movies this year. Well, that's um, just fantastic. Let's see. Lost City, Bullet Train, She Said, Women Talking, Blonde, with Ana de Armas, and Babylon, a.k.a. the best movie of 2022. <laughs> well, I think movies are back. We've decided it. <laughs> movies are back. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Batman. Thank you, Channing. <laughs> uh but yeah that is uh the march recap plus a, a few extras so we'll be we'll be back talking about more brad pitt movies we still got four more to go this year so i'm sure we'll <laughs> <laughs> we'll hit all those at some point or another um unless we get more inevitable delays but i'm not gonna put that out there well you but, already uh, did so we're we're, we're screwed but, I, but then i knocked on wood so <laughs> But uh, yeah, it's been fun. So we'll be back talking about more movies, maybe even uh, what Martin Scorsese called cinema, Morbius. Uh, but we'll see. <laughs> so remember, you can always check us out online at moviebabble.com.